Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Today on the podcast, we've got Jamie Manson, the president of Catholics for Choice, also uh, a former Whole Whale client. We were thrilled to have worked with them uh, on on some projects, but now finding ourselves having a conversation, a very, I'll just say, sad note in in American history on, on the particular topic. So first off, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on and talking about what Catholics for Choice is doing. Great. My pleasure, George. Thanks for having me. I immediately, my mind shot directly to your work and, you know, where things were. How much, I'll just start right at it. How much of a surprise was the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade? Technically, as of this recording, this has not been officially mm-hmm. handed down yet. Well, um, it wasn't surprising um, because five is bigger than four. And we know five justices are very opposed to to abortion rights. Uh, and we heard the the arguments in this Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health are case uh, on December 1st. We were listening. We heard uh, what those justices were saying and uh, very clearly indicating they were not going to uphold the the ruling from 1973. What was surprising was the leak that happened um, the first week of May. That that was surprising. That doesn't happen. Why it happened and who did it remain a great mystery. But in terms of the substance of it, no. Un- unfortunately, it wasn't a surprise for us who have been tracking this closely. Let's dial back to the top. You know, Catholics for Choice in its name clearly is is about this narrative. Can you explain how this actually just Walk me through it, because I, on the surface, if you said the words Catholics, I'd say like, well, they believe that life begins at conception, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? I have very limited knowledge here. So help, help me here. Do you want to know about the organization or whether life begins at conception? (laughs) Well, let's start with the easier one first. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the easier one, the organization? Okay. So we have been around for almost 50 years. The organization... There, there, there was some loose um, organization uh, around, you know, pre-row uh, of Catholics fighting for abortion rights, especially as abortion laws started to get quite liberalized in different states like New York, like California, places like that, pre-row. So pre-1973. Uh, we considered 1974 to be our real beginnings. And this was the first anniversary of the Roe v. Wade uh, ruling. And um, one of the women who had been sort of running this movement of pro-choice Catholics dressed up like the Pope and went to St. Patrick's Cathedral and declared herself Pope Patricia, who supported abortion rights and made the claim that, you know, the church's teaching on this issue had nothing to do with God or theology, um, but was rather about a desire among the church hierarchy to um, control the bodies of women and their destinies. Maybe that then dovetails into how how do you reconcile from, I guess, internally, if you're speaking with somebody of the same faith, how do you reconcile what may be sometimes taught in that sense of life begins at 
conception and it is a sin to kill, right? How, or how does that narrative work? So, I mean, I'd start with that claim that life begins a conception. First of all, that has not always been the church's teaching. They're, they claim now that that's always been the church's teaching and it's unchangeable. That's just simply false. Um, the most important formative theologians in the church's history, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, did not believe that. Uh, they believed that, uh, that a fetus became ensouled much later in fetal development. So this is a very new notion that's, that really wasn't spoken about in the church until 1873. And for a church that's almost 2,000 years old, that's, you know, a pretty long time. So, you know, so that's a relatively new teaching if it happened in 1873. So that is the first place that I would start is just debunking that myth that that is the teaching. Scientifically, the problem with that teaching, uh, and again, the Catholic Church is is a tradition that does consult with science in its in its development of doctrine. Scientifically, um, 60% of fertilized eggs are washed out of the body naturally. So if that's the case, why would God create a, a natural process that would cause so much death as the church would interpret it. It just simply doesn't make sense. So in terms of church history and in terms of science, the claim just doesn't hold up. And that to me, for Catholics for Choice, that, is an, that should be an opportunity for a conversation. But the problem is church leadership does not want to have that conversation. They want silence and taboo around this issue and punishment if you dare to talk about it. Can I ask why? Why, why it's so taboo in the church? Yeah. yeah. It's really the, the last one. I mean, the ordination of women is also pretty stigmatized, and you can also get punished for talking about that. Uh, what's the common denominator? Well, mostly women get pregnant, and it's women seeking ordination. And so there is definitely a, a connection there. And essentially what it has to do with is uh, the church's belief that women have a separate role from men in society, in the church, um, and that this is God's plan for humanity, uh, that men should be leaders uh, and be the authority figures, and that women should be in a, always in positions of service or of nurturing, and that our most essential vocation is motherhood. And so that's just, by the hierarchy's interpretation, that's just how God wants it. Um, and so that is the fundament, those are the fundamental beliefs behind these teachings on the ban on women's ordination and on the ban on abortion. I almost understand it, but I think to get to the next level of understanding, I, I would need to become like a, a theologian, theologian. Theologian, yes. Theologian to get there. It's probably more likely in, in conversations. What are the, what are the narratives or, or what are the just, you know, you're talking to somebody, you know, at, at a church or at a gathering, like what is the, the narrative that usually seems to carry the humanity that I'm hearing in, in what Catholics for Choice is, is doing? Well, there are no inroads for this conversation, unfortunately, in Catholic parishes or even Catholic universities. And some Catholic universities are quite liberal and you still can't talk about it there. So we have to have these conversations outside of the walls of the church, unfortunately. And it's, it's unfortunate for a number of reasons. The first is the majority of Catholics in the United States support abortion rights. 68% do not want to see Roe versus Wade struck down. 59% think abortion should be legal in all or most cases. And even more stunningly, 
of the abortion patients in the United States annually, one quarter of them, 24%, are Catholic. And so people are having abortions in the church, you know, women that are contributing, contributing richly to the life of the church are having abortions. And we have a church that just seems content to just call them murderers and leave it there. And so it's a pastoral crisis, really. Um, in addition to being the political crisis, it's become uh, and the social crisis. So, yeah, it's the, the, the chasm between what Catholics think and what its leadership insists on is massive. The recent articles that came out and seemingly continue to come out with Catholic bishops stating that Nancy Pelosi is no longer welcome to accept communion. It's kind of, it's jarring. You're saying, you know, this is a, a person of faith and it, it, it seems to be knowing nothing. It seems like not allowing someone to accept communion is a pretty serious deal. Can you put it in context for me of what that actually means? Yeah, it is very grave. It is literally starving someone out of their church, refusing to feed them, you know, when they come to the church hungry. This is the Eucharist of the seven sacraments of, um, in the Catholic tradition. Eucharist is, is in many ways, the most sacred. Um, it's the one we do most often. It is the unifying uh, sacred ritual of this church. Uh, it is a great source of consolation for people. And so it's, it's spiritually violent. Uh, really to 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 do that um to deny someone communion it's also totally opposed to anything jesus would have done jesus welcomed everyone to his table no questions asked no orthodoxy tests needed uh so it, it also violates the gospel teaching completely the thing that happened with with uh speaker pelosi is interesting because this was a huge issue for all of the U.S. bishops uh, last year, they had voted on trying to create a document that they hoped would give them the credibility to deny President Biden communion, Nancy Pelosi, any Catholic of elected official who supported abortion rights. And there was such outrage from across the political divide of the church of Catholics saying, you don't weaponize the sacraments like this is this is you've you've really crossed the line here that the bishops actually retreated. And and they they said, OK, and they didn't they ended up creating a document, but it didn't have any of this this particular teaching it and about denying communion. The Nancy Pelosi issue is interesting because it, this is the case where her archbishop, Salvatore Cordelioni in San Francisco, is sort of an army of one now taking up a cause that had been settled a year ago um, and trying to shame her and pol politically intimidate her. Uh, by weaponizing the Eucharist. And so it's tragic. And I, there, he has very little support for this among the lay people in the church. Um, and I think that he does like to do these sort of splashy things that get him national attention, though. Um, it was interesting this past weekend, Pope Francis made, I think, 21 men cardinals, and he was not one of them. So one of the only cardinal U.S. that he decided to um, give the red hat to, as they say, was a, a bishop who had very clearly said that he was opposed to this idea of denying communion. And Francis himself has said he's never denied communion to anyone. So you had a case of with this Archbishop Cordelioni of, of someone going very rogue, even among his brother bishops in this country and with the Pope. 
I mean, sadly, I know this news is pretty recent, but it looks like the Diocese of Virginia and Texas also followed suit for, you know, for what that's worth. But it, it's, you're right, not an overwhelming support and a bit more of seemingly rogue actors. However, it's, it's hard for people sitting on the outside to sort of distinguish that because you assume that there's like, you know, you're all sort of on team Catholics, Catholicism. Mm-hmm. God, we're reading from the same book. We have people, and it actually, you know, you're you're citing the that stat, sixty eight percent, sixty eight percent of Catholics support Roe v. Wade, uh, and that they wouldn't overturn it. Coming from a twenty twenty Pew Research study, I believe, where those uh, those data come from, and there seems to be, if you're talking about sixty eight percent, and what's more, also in direct polling, it looks like fifty six percent are in support of uh, a level of abortion you know, depending on where you draw the line on, on it, uh, aren't, aren't support of it, but it, it feels like that's uh, against, I guess, how do you reconcile that with where seemingly some bishops are and others are? How would you, and what, what is the Pew research on bishops <laughs> for, for where they are? Oh, I don't think there is any, unfortunately, because it would be fascinating. Um, so we only know by what they write and what they tweet. And so it's in terms of how, you know, this is not the only issue in which, you know, these particular bishops in Texas, in Virginia, in San Francisco are hardliners. They're also very, very um, uh, anti-LGBTQ, very anti-trans, you know, very opposed to women's equality. So this is this is not the only issue on which uh, the majority of Catholics disagree with these particular bishops. Um, and so they, they really have, they're very, um, those, those three guys in particular are especially radicalized for whatever reason, but they always pick abortion as the litmus test, interestingly, about whether someone's in or someone's out, you know, but we are not a single issue faith, you know, in, in the Catholic church. And so to have the selective fundamentalism about that issue in particular does nothing for anyone, it helps no one. What they need to do is have a, you know, start having conversations, start listening to Catholics who have had abortions, listen to their stories, listen to why they made the choices they did, um, and to take a much more pastoral approach with this issue rather than a punitive one. I guess one, one hint at some of these data is also in that same Pew Research report where they say that uh, roughly four in 10, about 44% heard uh, homilies that expressed opposition to abortion in the past month, albeit this is a, you know, 2020. So, you know, the number would suggest there are more bishops than just them, or maybe just that type of, that type of message, frankly, that's a bit more hard line on this going on than even the public support. It seems like there's a real tension here because, you know, I'm, I don't, I won't do too much public math, but if you have 68% of Catholics in rough support, generally saying of Roe v. Wade, and then you have 44%, you know, there's a, there's a Delta there, uh, of saying that, you know, maybe there's misalignment. Mm-hmm. What does that look like from where you sit? It is exactly what you say. It is a misalignment. You know, it's 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 a, it's like with LGBTQ rights and and women's equality. It's it's there's a chasm between the way the hierarchy think about this issue and the way in which the lay people think about this issue. Now, it's important to remember um, all these teachings 
were developed by men and only by men and men who are who have claimed to have made a, a, a vow of celibacy and therefore do not have wives, do not have daughters, do not have experienced the normal challenges of family life and human life, um, much is provided, including housing and cars and food and, you know, job security. And so they don't understand what, our, what, what regular life is like. I mean, they can listen deeply, they can share, they have extended family. But, you know, they're enforcing teachings that no woman had any voice or any or any say in. And again, they, they are very disconnected from from the lives of women, particularly. And so I think that it's not a surprise uh, when this is your leadership uh, that you have this kind of a misalignment uh, with with the ordinary lay Catholic. This is this may be pretty hard, but what, what's the way forward? What's the path forward as Catholics for Choice sees it from where you stand right now? I think the way forward is to not worry about bishops. I think it's, you know, uh, it upsets me that that people are hearing anti-abortion sermons in homilies. Um, I think that's very political. I don't think that's appropriate, you know, necessarily for uh, for the for the you know the sacred space that is a Sunday mass, uh, that is you know that is that's something I cannot control. That's something I have no power over because I have no authority in the church because I am a woman, so I can't do anything about that. What I can do is talk to the ordinary lay Catholics, um, those who feel conflicted about the issue because it is a morally complex, uh, I uh, issue for them. And I can talk to those Catholic, those 68% of Catholics, and I can get them to be more bold and more open about their support. Um, and I can get Catholics who don't know how they feel yet. To I can give them information. I can give them the theological history. I can give them the white supremacist history of the modern anti-choice movement. I can give them all of that, all of that material. And, and invite them to make their own discernment. And I can create spaces uh, as a president of Catholics for Choice for Catholics to have these conversations that they desperately need to have. And we're doing that. You know, we, we've just done five seminars with progressive Catholics um, who knew how they, you know, very supportive of LGBT rights, women's equality, trans rights, sex, clergy sex abuse survivors, all of those people that have been trying to find justice in the church on those issues, but haven't really dealt with abortion. And so engaging them um, and providing that kind of information and th those those histories and all of that has been very helpful. And you know, the plan is to, you know, deploy these trainings throughout the country and community by community, Catholic by Catholic, get us talking about this issue. I'm wondering if you've seen any increase of support, either be it from the community donations, traffic interest has there been any sort of rise in, in people realizing that like wait a minute we have to we have to support you know the work you're all doing definitely so these three seminars i just mentioned that i did with these catholic communities it was forbidden to talk about abortion even in these very progressive communities this wouldn't have been done a year ago but to see roe you know on the brink to know that it was Catholic bishops who started, who were the prime movers behind the anti-abortion movement in this country, they feel it's a moral obligation now to learn and to do the moral discernment they need to do and to speak publicly about the issue. So that alone has been an inspiration. 
and 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 a sort of a a silver lining in 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 a, in a very very bleak moment. Uh, we've definitely seen every time there's a there's a, there's a spike whenever there's an issue. So when the bishops are trying to deny Biden communion um, now, what you know on the on the September on the December first Dobbs uh, arguments in the Supreme Court, the leak we see huge spikes in interest in what we do. And and yes, some some money has come in as a result as well through individual donations, which has been wonderful uh, because we have such ambitious plans at Catholics for Choice and so much we want to do. And to to get the funding we need would be incredible, you know, to have the capacity that we want to work at. Well, what's the big dream this year? If you could, you know, say, you know, it's what you think is going to happen is going to happen this summer. Right. You know, you roll into the fall. It's going to be, we are aware, going to be a midterm to remember, of course, because there's going to be some ridiculousness and this and that. But it varies. It seems very clear that abortion is going to be in high priority, you know, maybe second or first back and forth with uh, gun control in our country. Mm-hmm. And what is your dream for Catholics for Choice in, in that moment? So um, my hope is, I mean, we're 501c3, so I can't say anything about particular candidates or anything like that. But my hope is that this training that we have created find its way throughout the country in pockets of Catholics who have been voting for anti-choice candidates and maybe want to rethink that decision because now they see the larger agenda. Anti-choice candidates are also anti-gay. You know, they're, you know, uh, they're anti-women's equality. They're anti a lot of things um, that Catholics otherwise support. Um, anti, you know, anti-mother, anti-family with the way the policies they support, you know, being pro-gun and all of that. So my hope is that, you know, this training goes throughout throughout the the country, um, that people are interested, that they want to hear more, that they want to learn and really want to engage. Because I think we have, you know, just messaging and slogans is not going to get us what we want. This issue is morally complex enough that we have to do deep work community by community. So my hope is we find interest in in some really key states um, and some advocates who want to, you know, get these, get, get this curricula out there. That would be huge. I also hope we find a way to step into the breach of of the terrible, terrible loss of care that's going to happen. You know, we are a small organization, but there are a lot of Catholics getting abortions and there will continue to be a lot of Catholics seeking abortions. So I hope we find a way creatively in coalition with other faith-based partners to help provide some sort of practical support or services to these populations because they're not going to get any support from the Catholic Church. I'm wondering, as a just as a leader and looking at your team, how how's morale been? You know, where where has that been tracking? And you know, how did you just speaking to you as a as a leader? Mm-hmm. Like, what what did you say? What did you do? Or what are you doing to to try to rally folks? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, we saw it coming, so um, it wasn't a surprise. And so I started on December 1st when we were outside of in front of the Supreme Court and the anti-choice folks were very, very radicalized and saying very nasty, very woman-hating things to us. That's when I started to see the emotional toll this was going to take. Uh, the Catholic Choice staff is young. They're in their 20s and early 30s. So for a lot of them, this is this is new. And uh, even for people who are veterans in the in the in the pro-choice movement, though this was new, they had never seen anything. They had never seen the anti-choice folks so emboldened. 
and so triumphant and, and aggressive. So, um, you know, I'm, I've been trying to instill a culture of self-care, but also care for each other is really, really important. And so um, I know we talk a lot about self-care and it's very important, but care of one another that you're working with, I think is as important. And that's everything from making your deadlines to watching the way you speak to people, you know, trying to have little social events where we can, we're going to have a little happy hour later today. Uh, because it is hard. Um, we're also going to um, institute a wellness stipend for folks. Um, I know I take a boxing class that saves my life uh, because it helps me get, you know, deal with the anxiety, you know, and the stress that comes from this this issue. So it's hard. So it's just a constant cultivation of a, a culture of care that has to be done as a leader um, and always lead with compassion first. Be really hard dealing with not only a, an incredibly intense issue, but also an intense moment. Yeah. And it, I've seen it with a lot of social impact organizations where because the severity of the issue is so important, so too must be the culture, it seems. And when in fact, what you're probably going to need is the type of, as you mentioned, self-care and culture of sort of support and, and endurance, I'd probably add for, for what's ahead. And I, I'm just fascinated to hear, you know, this is a, a once in a generation moment where something as inalienable as we thought as a, a human right here has been potentially revoked. And now you are at the forefront of this. And as you mentioned, leading a young team and try to balance things. So it's fascinating to hear how you're, you're trying to prepare for this, for this moment. Yeah, I think it's it's really important, you know. Um, we're gonna do, you know, we're we're in the office twice a week right now. I don't think we'll go beyond that. We're gonna do full remote in August so people can be where they wanna be to work. You know, we're gonna give extra days off, things like that, just to thank people because they are working very long hours um in certain certain periods. And so I it's very important to me that people don't burn out. Um it's important to me I don't burn out. And so you know, I think that that's, that's really important to be constantly aware of it. And, and for me, I'm like, tell me, feel like you're burning out. Please tell me, don't hide it. You know, uh, be honest. I mean, the, the, the values I've tried to instill the last 18 months since I became president are um, mutual admiration and respect, uh, radical transparency and accountability. Um, I want people to show up to work as they are, and I want them to be able to feel comfortable pushing back on me in particular. Um, and so, uh, that, that's sort of, but again, you don't, you don't just say, okay, these are our values now and everybody's going to just do it. You have to build a lot of trust in order to do that. Uh, and so that's, that was been a lot of the work we've done. Uh, and still, you know, a lot of my day goes to our internal, the internal health of this organization. And I think that's time well spent. I like that you mentioned before, this is not going to be sold with a slogan. And it's not going to be done in a tweet. It's going to be done, it seems, through what you're calling seminars and trainings. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Well, we uh, we just uh, we're on the brink. We're doing our final touches on a 130 page manual. <laughs> That's a brief, actually much a more brief jaunt. A brief jaunt. It's actually really it's big, and so it's really well laid out. So it's not like small letters. Um, I'm just going through all of the different, you know, 
pieces that we think people need to understand to have a courageous conversation about abortion, especially people of faith, and uh, how to how to how to advocate if you want to advocate, how to talk to your family about the issue, what to do if a friend of yours is having an abortion. I mean, we have all of the pieces uh, in this. It's sort of a one-stop shop for everything, and so. Uh, we're doing a launch party next month with that. And um, yeah, we have some key partnerships in particular states and particular organizations, medical like um, doctors uh, and, and medical students that we are going to uh, teach this training to in the hope that they go and they you know, go out and spread the good news <laughs> that people of faith support abortion rights and that you know, it's okay to have an abortion and, and that uh, that can be abortion can be a blessing and a moral choice for people. And just to, to take away the stigma that the church, the church wants to have silence and stigma and taboo and punishments. Um, this is not the approach we're taking. We're taking the opposite. And we know we have an audience for it because, again, we have the majority agree with us and such a huge number of Catholics get abortions. So um, yeah, that's sort of the model right now that that we're working on. You know, we've got the manual. We calling we're calling it the Advocates Bible because it got so big. It went. It was started as a toolkit. It got so big it became Bible. So <laughs> we hope that's a good start. Um, to, you know, a starting place for a lot of people who want to have these conversations in their communities. Sounds like a tremendous resource and a lot of uh, careful work to go into it. Certainly, uh, a great time to have it. Yeah. All right. I'm going to move into our rapid fire questions. Okay. As best we can. Here we go. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using the last year? What is one tech tool or website? Oh, geez. I know we use every action. Yeah, this seems to be a good, a good fit for us. What are tech issues you're currently battling with? Mm. I think the big issue is this um, cyber warfare that you know anti-abortion folks want to wage on us, and we had there was a there was a little you know we we get we get threats obviously via social media quite a we fear being doxxed, you know we had to spend a lot of money on the cybersecurity and and getting training around that and having uh, you know all of our our vulnerabilities examined, so it's yeah it's really really hard. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? Mm. Just, wow. It's so hard to think past June right now, to be honest with you, when this decision <laughs> might be made. And it's so hard to think about something exciting. But I think that I'd like to see, you know, how, what this new training we've created, um, how it does out in the world. I'm very excited to see how it plays out. So far, so good. Can you talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Um, so many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I um, I think that one of the mistakes is, uh, and I think women particularly are socialized, you know, to want to be liked, and that's really really hard because I also I lead with compassion. I want to be, you know, a, a, someone who's respected. Uh, I don't want to be all the boss, the terrible bosses I had, and so it's a delicate balance of of figuring out, you know you know, trying to distance yourself from trying to remember you're not running a popularity contest as a leader, you know? And so, you know, the, the balance of how to be a really good leader and a compassionate, respected leader uh, without, and not worrying about being liked or not liked. Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business? 
I think some can. Um, we certainly wrote in our strategic plan what it would take for us to go out of business, and it's aspirational. <laughs> Might be a little bit. Yeah. Okay, how I mean, old I, is the Catholic Church? Calculate 1873, carry the one. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was aspirational. It would require a, an enormous amount of dismantling um, and reimagining. But I think, I'd like to think some can. Um, you hope some can, but then perhaps they pivot to the next thing. That's certainly what we, you know, we have to be very elastic, I think, and nimble in this work uh, because our the, the anti-choice movement, the right wing is very nimble and always looking ahead. And so um, I think that nonprofits need to do the same. If I were to throw you into a time machine back to the beginning of your work at Catholics for Choice, what advice would you give yourself? Oh my God. Uh, I would have said, you got this. Don't worry. You know, I had enormous headwinds on every level, every possible headwind coming into this job 18 months ago. And it was pretty overwhelming and um, a lot of a lot of it unexpected and I was unprepared for. And so just to have that confidence in myself and my leadership, you know, just you got this. You had a magic wand to wave across the social impact sector. What would it social impact sector? Oh, my goodness. I didn't. I don't know. I think I think really reckoning with racism, I think, would be really in white supremacy and naming it uh, and making sure that leadership, you know, reflects, uh, reflects, you know, the 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 movement toward pro-blackness and pro-BIPOC people that that we need. You know, we need to be leaders in that in that dismantling. Um, and those being courageous enough to name white supremacy and name it in yourself, um, I think is very, very important and see it in yourself uh, as white people, I think is really essential. How did you get started in the social impact sector? Well, I felt called to be a Catholic priest and church didn't want make some woman. And so <laughs> it kind of got me on fire for gender equality. Uh, and, um, that was the beginning of my work. Uh, but then I actually worked with the New York City homeless for five years, the street homeless. That was, I mean, agony and ecstasy, I would, I would say. And so, uh, yeah, it's always been, you know, about justice for me and, and, and about people who are most marginalized and most vulnerable and, and, and walking with them and lifting, you know, um, just... You know, lifting up their needs and, you know, creating conditions where they can, you know, enjoy full freedom and full power, you know, um, is, has always been, and that's what I do now with abortion rights because abortion rights are all about freedom and power and men trying to keep it out of the hands of women, particularly, uh, because it's intricately tied uh, to controlling one's reproduction. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of what it's been about, about honoring people's dignity and, and trying to create those structures where they can be free and fully in power. What advice would you give college graduates currently looking to enter the social impact sector? You know, I think it is very important to be passionate about what you do because this work is very, very hard. Um, and I really want to encourage people uh, to get involved in development work um, and in fundraising work. I think that the, a lot of us are uncomfortable with it. I happen to love it. But I love it because I really am fiery believer in my missions. 
And so it's easy for me, you know, to talk um, convincingly about that. So I would, I would say don't shy away from the money piece of the work and don't be ashamed of it. Don't be embarrassed of it. Um, it's not bad to raise money and to want money for capacity building. Um, as long as you're treating that, but you're being just about the way you deal with your money, you're being just with the wages you pay people, um, and you're transparent about how you use money. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or did not? You know, I, you know, my father wasn't really part of my life, unfortunately. Um, but my mother is amazing. She's a, she's a child of immigrants from Italy. Um, and, uh, you know, she was always supportive of me. You know, I grew up in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, I was pretty, what you would call now gender dysphoric, uh, or pretty, you know, uh, you know, on the gender spectrum. And my mother was, um, so supportive. You know, I couldn't wear girls clothes. She was, she worked hard to find, and it was not easy in those days to find boy clothes, so to speak for, for girls. Uh, and so, you know, I, when I came out, I never had a second thought that I would be anything but accepted, you know, and so I'm very lucky because, you know, she grew up in a very conservative and, you know, patriarchal environment in the 50s. And so um, just her radical acceptance and support of me, you know, is, is sort of, I think, uh, the build and the key foundation of how, why I'm able to do what I'm able to do. All right. How do people find you? How do people help you? Oh, my. Uh, find us at catholicsforchoice.org or on our Twitter. It's at Catholic number four choice. Um, we couldn't find fit Catholics into the Twitter, whatever. <laughs> and uh, certainly, I'm not going to lie. Of course, we always need financial support. Uh, we really have some big dreams uh, that I really want to execute on. And if not, you know, spread the word that, you know, pro-choice Catholics exist. We're the majority. You're not alone and use our materials and use them liberally and, and with gusto. Well, I just want to thank you for your time here and also just to borrow some advice that I imagine future you might give you. You got this. Thank you for your work. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, George. I appreciate that. I needed that. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 